Welcome to the Latter-day Contemplation Presents Come Follow Me podcast. I'm your co-host, Abdul Haq, also known as Christopher Hurtado. I'm also co-host of the Latter-day Peace Studies Presents Come Follow Me and Latter-day Contemplation podcasts. In this podcast, I'm joined by my co-host and Sufi master, Sufi Al-Hajj Daoud, also known as Dr. David Peck. Dr. Peck is also the host of the Of Saints and Sufis, Musings of a Mormon Mystic podcast. On this podcast, we're sharing an actual master-disciple dialogue on scripture with little to no editing. I'm your co-host, Sufi Al-Hajj Dawood, also known as Dr. David Peck. The Sufi path is a spiritual, mystical, and contemplative practice often described as a journey. Universal Sufism is not a religion. Rather, universal Sufism is a spiritual path that welcomes persons of all religions or no religion at all. Our path is open to all, welcomes all, loves all. Sufi scripture study begins with a de-educational process that speaks directly to the souls of saints and Sufis and their scriptures. This study sets aside mere ethical or doctrinal readings through what Sufis call unlearning. This Sufi mystical approach enables one to see the scriptures afresh through spiritual eyes. We invite you to join our unfolding dialogue. Let the journey begin. Master, as always, it's good to be with you. Oh, it's my pleasure, Yabdul Haq. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. Peace be upon you too, my friend. This week's assignment for Come Follow Me is First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. And you've selected the verses this week, and those verses are Philemon 8 through 9, one chapter only in Philemon, verses 8 through 9. Would you like me to read those verses? Would you please? Okay. This is from the NRSV, right? Yes. For this reason, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And that's Paul. And that is Paul. Yes. This, this, this uh, particular epistle is, is attributed to Paul. Yeah. So uh, why don't we take a moment and uh, go through our unlearning terms or phrases, things that might have, have stuck out to you and, and, uh, and that we can talk about maybe seeing in a new light. Do you have anything uh, that you see, or do you want me to just jump in? When I think about words, I actually think more, when I look at this first, not about the actual words, but about the overall sense of command versus love, right? Of power versus persuasion, as it were. But I do see some, some terms still, duty shows up for me. It's, a, it's something that's been on my mind as I've been rereading the Gita, and you know, Dharma is often translated duty. There's that sense of what you should do, what is right to do. And then again, as I said, there's commanding versus loving. That's what I see. Okay, yeah. I think that, uh, and are these opposites? That's the question I'd like to raise in our discussion today is the notion that commanding or appealing on the basis of love, commanding on the basis of duty or appealing on the basis of love uh, stand in opposition to each other, and uh, or, or at least are in tension, significant tension with each other. And I think that uh, this is what Paul is saying here, right? Uh, that I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty. So we call Paul an apostle, right? And and I, I I'm happy with that because he wrote epistles. 
but uh, and had a message, and his message was essentially the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of the gospel of good news. So uh, I think that he has an authority, although he was never, we have no record of him ever being you know, accepted into a quorum of 12 or being called an apostle uh, in, in some other formalized sense. But I think it's important to understand that he, uh, he has this authority. Maybe the authority comes from he baptized certain people or he was the messenger and, and so that authority exists. But commanding to do duty, he seems to think he has the authority to do that, but he would rather not. That brings up a couple of things for me. You know, first, I didn't really connect the verbs to to duty and love. I see what you're saying, right? It says, command you based on duty, appeal to you based on love, right? So that, that really helps me see this better. The other thing is, you know, when it comes to authority, I know we have this sense of authority as something hierarchical. And, and if we go to the dictionary, we can find backing for that. But there's another sense of authority that's also found in the dictionary, that Joseph Smith taught, and that's based on experience. And, and this is something we can relate to whether or not we, we know of Joseph Smith's teachings on the matter, because we say of people who have experience uh, that they, they speak with authority, right? The idea when you have experience is that gives you authority based on that experience. And so Paul has the authority of his vision on the road to Damascus. He has this immediate experience. When I say immediate, I mean literally immediate. There's nothing between him and Christ. It's a face-to-face experience as, as he tells it, right? And so that's where his authority comes from. And it's interesting, you know, that he can say he's, he's bold enough in Christ. That's the other thing that stood out to me, in Christ, to command. And yet, it doesn't sound like he, he wants to go that route. He wants to try something different, which is an appeal on the basis of love. They do show up as a dichotomy. So I would answer your question, no, they're not the same. And, and maybe even they are opposites. Okay, yeah. That, it seems to me that there is uh, an opposition there, that uh, there are two routes that may be taken, uh, one of command and the other of appeal, one of duty and one of love. And certainly, as you mentioned before, the Bhagavad Gita, uh, part of the Mahabharata poems of ancient India, you know, a formulative set, what, about 80,000 lines of epic poetry, the whole thing, and then the Gita fitting into that as one discussion, but nevertheless an important one, especially for, I shouldn't say especially for, but I think particularly for people in the West in that we haven't, we don't deal with the entire Mahabharata usually, more, that's more of a Hindu thing, but we have... Uh, brought the Gita into our consciousness, certainly uh, in the 20th century and now. And and I think it raises, it was brought up especially by many people in my youth. Uh, you know, I missed the Vietnam, year, uh, Vietnam War by one year. I graduated the year after the war came to a complete end in 1975. And uh, as, as I tried to grapple with the fact that I might be drafted and I might be going off into this war as a young man, Uh, I had several friends whose older brothers were reading the Bhagavad Gita because they were trying to resolve the question of duty in in the context of warfare, which is exactly what the Bhagavad Gita is about. That's a good point. Although I think sometimes we read it too literally as though it were only about this battle, you know, the scene that is painted in the book, that there's this battlefield, this actual battlefield, I think is a metaphor for the internal battle that we fight. And it reminds me of two prophets, the prophet Muhammad and the prophet David O. McKay, 
who both said something very similar, right? The Prophet Muhammad coming back from uh, an actual battle says to his men, we're going now from the lesser jihad back to the greater jihad because the greater jihad is the, the struggle, the internal struggle. Jihad means struggle, by the way. It doesn't mean holy war. So it's a struggle. So that we go back to this internal struggle, which is like what David O. McKay says later, where he says, the greatest battles that we face, right? And this is a paraphrase. I don't remember his exact words. Happen in the silent chambers of his soul, of our souls. The oh, I think, yeah, that's beautiful. You know, uh, just just to make a comment really quickly on how that impacted me in, in saying that is this, the, the path of Sufism is often defined by Sufis as the inner jihad. That's the struggle is with our own soul, not not some external struggle. And when we begin to heal our soul, then our outward actions take care of the battles. We, we find a way to deal with the outward struggles, the outward jihad, as you would say. The, 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 the inner jihad is a solution to the outer jihad, so to speak. It's interesting to note, too, as you mentioned, that the Gita is important in the, in the West, that it is actually the most revered Hindu scripture among Hindus, and it's said to be an epitome or a summary of the Upanishads, which are these teachings, right? I think we can compare Upanishads to what, um, Talmud maybe, something like that? Yeah, so it, these, this is the most important book of scripture and the most loved and revered, it is called the Song of God, the God Song, right? That's the, the meaning of the Bhagavad Gita. And it really is beautiful. And it has this image, too, this, this moment of seeing through the veil, right? Of, of Arjuna seeing the true form of Krishna, who is his charioteer, but who is actually an incarnation of the high God, right? So he's a figure that looks in some sense like Jesus in our tradition, and there's this moment like in the brother of Jared in the Book of Mormon where he gets to see the actual form of this God right? where, where he can't be kept from within the veil. Yeah, that's back to Ether 3, right? The, the brother of Jared yeah, cannot be kept from within the veil, keeping from within. South Africa.
I absolutely love it. I remember reading part of the Tao Te Ching when I was much younger that really impacted me that way because it, it talked about through a single human, they can impact themselves and they can impact their family, then their neighbors, their village, and and onward and outward that impact can can grow. And uh, I think I was reading the bitter, uh, Winter Bitters uh, translation of, uh, of the Tao Te Ching, and he said, how can I know this integrity? How can I know that that's true? And he said, because it can all begin with me. And so what the Sufi path tries to do is that very thing, which is I, I, can't, I can't make other people behave the way I want them to, and it'd be actually wrong for me to do because that's a power relationship. But I can appeal on the basis of love, and I can try to be better myself. And that can be my contribution, which brings us exactly back to Paul. Do we command or do we appeal? Do we remind people of their duty and they're not living up to it? Or do we, or do we try to care about these people and love them first? And I think that, that we're going to find this teaching again and again and again and again because it is true. I would think of, if I can very briefly, go back to the 1978 First Presidency Statement called, I think it's February 15, 1978, a few months before the revelation on all worthy males, the priesthood. This is during the tenure of President Spencer W. Kimball, uh, who was the prophet of my youth, right? I was, I was actually on my mission when both of these statements came out and, and the revelation on, on the priesthood. And I... You know, in learning about that, where he said the 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 leaders, the great leaders of the great world's great leaders of the world's religions, and it names Muhammad and Confucius, and and then says philosophers like Socrates and Plato and many others received moral truths from God. Now that's a process of revelation to me, but I've heard a lot of people try to explain it away as inspiration or something. I go, well, receiving from God to me. It, it, I think it's revealed to them. I call them moral prophets. If nothing else, they may be much more than that. But but moral prophets, and my, my point would be that it says to enlighten whole nations and to bring individuals to a higher level. Um, and, and so these people are a blessing to us, and it should not surprise us that we find the same thing Paul is dealing with, or the same thing that President McKay is dealing with, or the same, we, it should not only not surprise us, but it's evidence of, of exactly what that statement is entitled, that February 15, 1978 statement by the First Presidency is entitled, God's Love for All Mankind. It's, it's, God is, the divine is busy revealing light and truth wherever light and truth can be revealed to the extent that light and truth can be revealed. And so I think it's beautiful that as you stretch into the Gita, yourself and your own studies and my studies, are we moved, that, the, that we find this. It's, it's to me a tremendous testimony of the love of the divine for us, for all mankind. Okay, he is appealing to 
to Arjuna on the on the basis of duty. You have a duty because you, you're one of the leaders in the royal family. You have a duty to uh, engage in this battle that's coming up for because it's a duty to your family. It's a duty to the state, right? You can't just let this empire fall apart. And I think that there would be reason for that because the chaos that might ensue would be worse than the order that exists. Um, I don't know about that, but he does talk about duty, but he goes on to mention, and you know this very well, uh, and maybe can, can help us understand, he, he appeals to the fruits. Don't look to the fruits of your duty. Don't perform your duty for a ego reason. So it's not the duty, it's why you're doing the duty. So let's suppose that Paul's saying, I could command you to do your duty, or I could appeal to you to do your duty on the basis of love. There's a sense, too, in which when he, he's commanding uh, based on duty, if he's saying he can do that, that is, then there is a duty. That implies that there is, there really is a duty, right? And then I also see, I see what you did there. If he appeals on the basis of love, that doesn't mean that it's not coming back to duty. The other thing I remember about Arjuna and Krishna is that actually in the end, what Krishna says is not only should you not act, right, on the basis of what you think will be the fruits of your actions, because that's up to me, is what Krishna tells him, right? It's up to God what happens in the end. But he says you should do all things, not just perform those actions that are your duty as a, as a king, as a prince, but also all things out of love for him, out of love, love of God. So it all comes back to what we often call the two great commandments, love God, love neighbor, self. You know, the, the golden rule is the most immediate way in which we can show our love for the divine. I mean, yes, we could pray all day long. We could fast every day in the week. We could, you know, there's many things we could try to do that would show our devotion to the divine. But I think what we're being told is, if you do it to the least of these, you've done it to me. Right. And this is something that not only Jesus taught, but that was also taught in, you know, it's in the Upanishads, right? It's in the, the oldest scriptures that we have deal with humanity in this way, that we are all one and that we are all God in some sense and that we serve God by serving one another. I think it's beautiful. It's, it's, it, and so love again becomes the issue here, not the duty. Um, it's, it's me telling my kids, I'm only, I'm only putting you in your rooms for your own good when it's, it's a lie. I, I, I remember the day that it dawned on me, no, I'm not, I'm doing it so they'll shut up so I can read my book. And, and I thought, well, wait a minute, do I have a duty toward my children? Yes. Would that, would that change, uh, if I acted out of love? Maybe I could sit down and ask them what's going wrong. What, why are they doing what they're doing? And, and probably they were just being kids, actually. And, uh, but I could, can I find a way to do it on real love, not on the satisfaction of my ego and getting them out of my way so that I could do what I wanted? I made the same mistake and I ended up uh, getting into the habit of staying up after everyone else had gone to bed, including my wife, and reading you know, I'd, I'd get a good four hours of complete silence by staying up until one o'clock in the morning reading. Well, sometimes I've stayed up literally 
all night. I just keep reading and reading and reading and reading and reading. And then I look at the clock and I go, oh, I better get ready for work. And I'm going, that probably was not a good idea. <laughs> you and Malcolm X, I can't do that. I need my sleep. I, I could only stay up until one by sleeping until nine. Well, I, I'm, uh, I'll just put it this way. I'm too old to do that anymore, but it's not, not that I haven't done it. So let's, uh, so the, the idea I think we're finding here as we, as we have gone through our unlearning discussion here is that it's not the duty that is the issue. It's, it's whether we are command, whether someone is commanding us to do it or whether the appeal comes from a sense of love. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would go back to Jesus and, and the woman taking an adultery story, right, where he just says, you know, I'm not going to judge you. So you need to, you need to go and not sin anymore. How are you going to figure that? Well, I think you know. I think you already understand, and you need to go down that path of love and, and find out, and I, I've shown you love. I didn't judge you. Right? And, and I could judge you. I could judge you, but I'm not going to judge you. I could command you, but I'm not going to command you. I'd rather appeal to you because, uh, you know, I think you've had a hard life. And I think you already know that this isn't what you want to do. And, uh, you know, so, so I think there's many examples where Jesus is doing exactly this. Of course, there are the times when he calls people out, like the... Uh, the uh, Pharisees in Matthew 23, you know, scribes and Pharisees, woe unto you. Eight woes, if I remember right, are pronounced in that, in that verse. And so, you know, any rate, uh, I think that we're, we're, we're coming around to understand what the nature of this verse may be trying to say to us, uh, especially from a Sufi perspective, which is uh, love is, is, is the resource that we want to draw upon. And, and indeed, uh, that we love one another. That's a toughie, but we're, that's where we're headed. It occurs to me when I think of commandments vis-a-vis -vis love, and this is going maybe outside of the context of the verse a little bit, which I think we're allowed to do here, right? Oh, I think so. And that is that uh, oftentimes we, given commandments, right, from God, let's say, that can be useful and that can give us, sort of shape us, right, uh, morally, to prepare us for a spiritual path. Not that they are the spiritual path, but that they prepare us for a spiritual path. And 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 yet, we seem to, contra contrary to Paul, right, we don't um, use words to lift people up, but we actually take those commandments, which he calls dead letter, by the way, and, and use them to to tear other people down. Right? Whereas he calls prophesying, Paul calls prophesying any words that build people up. And he tells us that the letter kills and the spirit gives life and that he wants the word of God to live in our hearts. Correct. So that is an issue of love, isn't it? And uh, so that brings up the question of judging other people. That uh, when we do that, is, is that an act of love, really? Um, Sometimes when I've been on the receiving end of that, and I'm sure that in my life I've handed out the same thing. I'm trying to live the path of love now more and more as I'm, I, I keep trying to refine myself. But as we, uh, <clears throat> in fact, I know I've made these kinds of judgments and I, I regret them because uh, it would have been better to take it a different way. I did the path of love. But as we do this, 
then we are assuming an authority over the other person. And usually what they boil down to is you're not me and so you're screwed up, right? You're messed up because you're not me. If you were me, you'd be fine. And I, I keep thinking, you know, you know, I taught the history of the Middle East for years at BYU-Idaho. And, and when I taught that, sometimes students would say, why do these people have all these problems? What is wrong with these, well, whoever they were, Palestinians or whatever? And, and if, if they were like us, they wouldn't have these problems was essentially the core of, of their comment. And I usually say, you're absolutely right. If they were like us, they wouldn't have those problems. They'd have our problems. That's right. <laughs> You know, and if brother or sister so-and-so wasn't like this, if they were like me, that's what my judgment of them is really saying, they wouldn't have the problem that I obviously see they have. And they'd have my problems, which include judgment of other people. (laughs) That's right. You know, that reminds me of a saying in Spanish. I'll just translate it literally into English, right? Word for word. It says, if my aunt had wheels, she'd be a bicycle. (laughs) <laughs> and this is what we say when people say these things, you know, oh, if you, uh, if you uh, were, were me, you wouldn't have that problem. Yeah, well, if my aunt had wheels, she'd be a bicycle. But, but she doesn't. And so she's not. <laughs> and so she's not. So why are we talking about this? Right. Because, you know, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's we find ourselves uh, caught up in a sense of duty as it appeals, as it's, as it's working its way out in us. And when we find something in others that we hook up to that then we decide we have to command them by judging them it's a it's a less formal command we don't we don't come up and say by the way you know but i think that's why jesus is saying don't judge because when you judge you leave you abandon the path of love i've told you to love your enemies i've told you to love one another i've told you let's get on the love wagon here and uh and, and, and it's harder to do than we think. In fact, we may think we love somebody when we command them to do something else. I'm only doing that because they need to hear it. And I'm going, says you, right? And, and that's the real challenge, says me. And, and uh, so the being moat thing is, I think, exceptionally valid daily in our lives. It occurs to me because you called it the the love wagon, right? Let's get on the love wagon. I get that, right? We've I, I fall off that wagon all the time. Sometimes I feel like that love wagon is a bucking bronco. It's not a wagon. It's a bucking bronco. But then you realize, well, no, that's not the love wagon. That's that's my ego, right? That's the bucking bronco. There's it reminds me because there are images of this in what Plato in in the Gita again um, in maybe even in the New Testament, of, of sort of riding horses, right? And do you see what I mean? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, dare I go back to my youth with, uh, with the music of the late 60s and, and early 70s and, and go right back to what the hippies were teaching when they said, you know, people all over the world, join in, join the love train, love train. And so, I mean... Were they wrong? I love that one. I, I, I thought of, uh, earlier I thought of, all you need is love. Yeah, all you need is love. Now the question then becomes, what does that love mean? Let me tell you a little story here to flesh this out. When I was, oh, I'm going to guess 11 or 12, my dad was getting his doctorate at ASU, and so we lived in Tempe, Arizona. And the only time I could have with my father, because he was, he was gone all the time to his PhD studies, 
you know, he's very dedicated to that. Let's get this done quickly. Let's get me a job. You know, we can't go on like this forever. He was very dedicated, but he used to walk me to the ASU library after dinner in the evenings. He'd come home for dinner. It's about a 20-minute walk there and a 20-minute walk back. And he would walk me there, and I would go find the youth section, and I, oh, I'd read book on stars. I'd read books on reptiles or whatever, while he went to his carol and did his work. But the walks were powerful walks. This is where I was introduced to Plato for the first time. You know, he he talked about Socrates, etc. But I remember telling him, because I saw it everywhere, right? I'm talking about hippie time of, of flower stickers on Volkswagen buses and, you know, in the music and in the songs, painted onto the stop signs. Uh, and I said, Dad... I what what's wrong? I hear people at church saying there's something wrong with make make love not war. I think love's a good idea. So you remember I'm twelve. Right. Okay, so so he says, I don't think you know what that means. And and of course I didn't. But the saying appealed to me as a young man. And and so now I'd like to go back to Paul here and say what does he mean by love? And I'd like to maybe do that by having a discussion of what I learned from St. Augustine of Hippo, right? The, the famous St. Augustine, who is, who is an important figure in, in all of Western Christianity, not just, not just for Orthodox, or Roman Catholics, or Greek Orthodox, but he's considered the second most important author in the Western Christian tradition after Paul. So I don't know if, if you want to comment on my anecdote before we move on. In other words, maybe my idea of love was when I heard that statement, make love not war, maybe my idea of love was not the intended idea of love of who was making the statement. And maybe, maybe the intended idea of who was making the statement, uh, so to speak, wasn't only what the people at church thought it was. Maybe, maybe it never was, maybe it still isn't. There's that, right? Now, as for as for Augustine, I I think you're going to talk about his confessions, right? Yes. Yeah, book two. Boy, Augustine's confessions. That's good stuff. Although I think it was my teacher Ed Firmish who said this. When when he when he's not sure of himself, when Augustine isn't sure of himself, he soars. When he's when he's sure of himself, he bores. So you get you get some ego coming through, but when when you get when it's not there, right? When somehow that ego isn't there in Augustine, it's just powerful stuff. It is. It speaks to me very, very directly. And um, you know, I taught I taught confessions in my world civilization classes. I always pick a piece of literature. I try to pick one from outside of Western civilization and one from inside to have the students read so that they can, because that gives them a, a new lens to view these cultures from. And uh, I was trying to do it in a way that would allow them to have access to it. And of course, the confessions of Augustine are difficult in that sense because we run into his youth. And of course, he's, he's confessing to this, the sins of youth, a young male. And his father was no help because his father encouraged him to act out those those urges, and 
it's kind of interesting. He says, mostly we bragged. We didn't really do things. We bragged among our friends, you know, hey, you know, I, I did this or I did the other. And he said, we didn't really, you know. He, uh, he took a mistress. I think that's uh, his mother, Monica, was a devout Christian and upset about this. And it took him a long time to work out that maybe that wasn't a healthy relationship as he thought it was. I think he cared for her. They had a son. Um, but he's confessing stuff to us. It's interesting to me that he considers his most serious sin when he and his friends picked some pears from a that tree and they threw, they just threw them at these pigs that were there and just pummeled them with these pears and, and hurt them and intentionally. Now, I think the reason why he considered that his worst sin is he said, if I did anything of the flesh, it was because I had the desires of the flesh. And, and that's a different, that's an important sin. He didn't downplay it, but he said, that's different than wanton sin. I didn't need to eat those pears. I had, I didn't want to eat the pears. They're probably unripe. I picked them to destroy the fruit and I picked them to hurt, to cause pain to these pigs. And he considered that wanton. He said, I had no need. I had no desire. I just let myself go. Wantonness, we can compare to the term, the Sufi term we've been using, ghafla, right? That we've called heedlessness. There's a sense in which ghafla can translate also as wantonness. Mm. We, we, we just do it. We don't even have the natural man desires, so to speak. We don't do it because we have a, a natural urge. We don't do it. You know, and so that's to me, I think he's saying is the opposite of love. And so in that's in book one where he relates these stories in book one of, of confession. Then he calls them books. We call them chapters, I suppose. But but any rate, in book two, he really comes to confront why he thought all of this was sin. And he does it by saying, what was it I desired? What was it I sought in all of these actions? Was it not this, to love and to be loved? Even in pummeling pigs with pears, it's his companion's approval he's after, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, so peer pressure love is, peer pressure love is one of those possible uh, misplaced loves. So, we're going to begin to talk about what love is. Certainly, uh, acting out on the desires of flesh, we would say, is not love. Because it's, it's an ego action, right? He's doing it to satisfy his own ego, meaning his pleasure centers. He's not doing it because he actually cares about this person. And, uh, and he's doing it so he can, in fact, he's saying, I didn't really do it. I basically bragged among my friends back to love of peer peer pressure type of love so he the whole rest of confession is him trying to figure out what love is and he would i paraphrase here he would say things like um i loved the wrong things or i loved the right things but i my love was deficient i didn't love the right things enough or i loved good things but i loved them too much I, I needed to, to deal with what he calls his mind and his will. 
my mind and my will had to be brought into my love. A Sufi would say, excuse me, a Sufi would say that he needs to deal with um, the ego aspects of what he was calling love with the soul aspects of what is love. And I think that um, Paul is trying to help us to do this, to appeal to you on the basis of love. So the real question is, what is love? And I think we've ruled out judgment so far in our discussion, that, that, that judgment is not, even though we think we're loving a person when we judge them. It strikes me as the, the opposite of love. It seems that when we love, we are accepting in some sense, right? And that when we are judging, we're not accepting, to state the obvious, right? Yeah. I, yeah. That we're saying there's something wrong with you. And uh, I've got the answer for you. And uh, so, you know, we, we've already gone back to the idea that Really, what I'm saying is if you weren't, if you were like me, you wouldn't have that problem. And that's true. We've, we've already discussed what that means. You know, you just have a totally different set of problems. It's not like problems go away. Well, but I think sometimes we think my problems are better than your problems. Or your problems are worse than my problems. My dad can beat up your dad and my problems are more manageable than your problems. <laughs> Or, or Old Testament, my God can beat up your God. The, my God can beat up your God. I mean, I used to have to talk about that in history. Why is it that you conquer a place and you, you have to build uh, some relig- your religious structure on top of somebody else's religious structure? You've got to tear it down and build yours up because you're saying, hey, my God whooped your God. And it, it, it is truly an aspect of, of the way in which uh, we handle these things. So I would like to go kind of to a metaphor I use in Sufi teachings. Because uh, often, as we deal with uh, religion and spirituality, we think of them as two separate things. But, but I tend to think of often the way we deal with things in a religion is we set up a hierarchical authority. This is true of just basically almost any religion. I'm not talking uh, specifically about uh, any one. Yeah, no, and, and I, it occurs to me, Earlier, I spoke of another sense of authority, which is the one in experience. So the religious authority is the hierarchical one. The spiritual authority is the experiential one. Is that fair to say? I think that is fair to say, because what is a Sufi going to tell you is your source of truth. It's your experience. We already know, that's all over the place in, in my own religious background, right? That it is by my own experience. Nobody else's. It is by my own experience that I learn to judge good from evil. It's by my own experience that I actually figure this out. And that's why, you know, as much as we might hate to attribute truth to Lucifer, I think Lucifer and Satan was exactly correct in saying there's no other way. It occurs to me too that even as we're taught to, to de- as we're taught to deal with authorities such as the scriptures, right? And it's interesting because for a moment, it, it just feels like that authority is part of a hierarchy, right? Well, they know. They're prophets, right? So you, so there's an appeal to authority there. And yet we're told to approach the divine and to seek the answers from the divine for ourselves, even regarding those prophets. And then now it occurs to me in this conversation, it isn't 
just we don't have to look at even the appeal to the prophets as an appeal to authority. These are people who had an experience and who are sharing their experience, and yet they're doing it in words. This is a theme we keep coming back to, and the words can't actually describe the experience, and that's why we're taught to seek our own experience. Exactly. I can't have your experiences. You can't have my experiences. And so the the real sort of spiritual damage we run the risk of when we judge is this insistence that another person's experience is invalid and my experience is valid. And that's sort of a form of spiritual violence, right? We're, 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 we're trying to take over their inward spiritual task. And, and by the way, I think a lot of times these people we read about sharing their experiences in Scripture, we're always looking for a way to turn that into a doctrine. And then from the doctrine, we want to turn it into a commandment when they were probably offering it as an act of love. They're just saying, hey, I've been, in other words, we can take what is an appeal to us on the basis of love and turn it into a commandment to do our duty. I know that there's a, another image that we can uh, go to for this, which is the, the stairway to heaven. Uh, you brought up in, in a brief pre-show discussion, right, that you wanted to talk about that. And I, don't, I wasn't sure whether you meant, now that you've mentioned some songs from the 60s and whatnot, are we talking about a song or are we talking about Jacob's Ladder? What are we talking about? Okay, well, I, I make a pun of it by calling it Stairway, Stairway to Heaven. And uh, I guess I'm not really quoting the, the rock and roll song because okay. that says a stairway to heaven, and I say the stairway to heaven. So maybe I can get out from under that uh, by, by making that minor uh, observation. So uh, now, what do I mean by that? <clears throat> One of the great challenges uh, that a person can have uh, is, is one in which they feel that um, the authority that they've accepted in their life from, from a religion or an institution uh, is not satisfying their spiritual need, that their, their needs go beyond that. They're dealing with someone in their family who doesn't do what they're commanded to do, yet they love them. And they feel like somehow they're being put into a position where they have to choose the, the religion they love or the institution that they love over the family member that they love. And I hear this expressed fairly frequently, in, in which case they're, they're trapped in their love. You know, this is how I read, before we get to Stairway to Heaven, this is how I read Hamlet. Hamlet is trapped. He's trying to love Ophelia, but yet he knows his Prince of Denmark, he can't ever marry her. He's He's trapped in these situations and then Ophelia is being told by her father and her brother you can't he doesn't love you that's not love you can't give in to him he's the prince of Denmark he can't love you and so she's trapped because she loves Hamlet and she knows that she can't marry him and now her father and her brother who she does love are commanding her not to do and so this whole to me, the entire play of Hamlet is, is conflict of love and failure of love. He loves his father who says, cause thy mother no harm when his ghost appears. But his ghost reveals that his uncle, who she married within a month of her father's death, his father's death, he's the one who killed me. But if Hamlet reveals he's the one who killed me, certainly the queen is going to be made complicit in the murder, having married that quickly. 
I mean, that's going to be fairly obvious to people that she either knew about it or was or consented to it or, or whatever. And so he loves his mother and he loves his father, but he can't love his father unless he reveals something that's going to harm his mother. But his father told him, don't harm your mother. He, they're all trapped in what is it I wanted? What is it I sought? Was it not this to love and to be loved? Well, he can't love and he can't be loved. And Ophelia can't love and she can't be loved. And it all comes apart in the most tragic way. And I, so I think that, you know, Shakespeare in that case is trying to tell us the truth of what Augustine is saying, of what the Bhagavad Gita is saying, of what the Tao Te Ching is saying, that, uh, that we, you know, love. Everybody dies. That's not actually a spoiler unless you just don't know Shakespeare at all, because that's always <laughs> What did case. I count? I'm probably wrong, but I, it seems to me I counted nine people die in that play. I mean, if that's not tragedy, I don't know what it is. You know, you've been talking about um, Hamlet this whole time, and I'm thinking of Romeo and Juliet. Oh, yeah. Because it's There's the same one. story. It's the same story. Failed love. Yep. Montagues and Capulets can't love each other. I'm sorry you do, but, you know, and then you've got all the, you know, Tybalt's killed and, you know, Romeo's complicit in that, and then they got to fake their death in order to have their love, but it turns it on its head. And and uh, <clears throat> I think Shakespeare's trying to tell us that, you know, a lot of a lot of life goes wrong because of love. Because of love? Because what I mean is, we love the wrong thing. We love it too well. We aren't allowed to love. We are commanded not to love. We are, and what I, what I'm getting at is, it's not. I shouldn't say because of love, but but related the, to love. The, love is at the center of the conflict, which which leads, which plays itself out. What about, there's, there's one version of this that you haven't mentioned, which isn't to say that Augustine doesn't, you just haven't mentioned it, but what about loving the right things for the wrong reasons? That's another one, right? Yeah. Are they ego reasons? Well, then, you know, that's the problem, isn't it? Because the ego wants us to turn somebody else to our will. And so, you know, when I practiced law for five years full time, I did a lot of LDS temple marriages, divorces for them. And what I found out in almost all of them is it, in my opinion, in, there are times when people are abused. There are times when it's just a bad thing. But I would count those as probably the minority of the times. And, and so in the majority of these, um, what I discovered was um, an assertion of ego. It was basically, if that person were who I wanted them to be, our marriage would be fixed. The problem is their problem. This is, it's another version of, if, if you were me, you wouldn't have that problem, right? That's right. That's right. You wouldn't have, that's exactly right. And so uh, now often they would say, well, I'm just not in love anymore. And I'm going, what do you mean by love? I mean, love is love. You know, it, does it take work? I mean, I had a lot of questions about that, but a lot of, I am not in love anymore to me, at least has the scent of ego to it. Uh, if, if not, you know, full on ego. So I'm just saying the question of love and the question of ego are intertwined with each other. And the question of the, the they center upon our, our, need for expression and fulfillment in love. All I ever wanted was to love. I want to love. I do. I think it's part of being human. And to be loved, I want to be loved. 
And so I can interpret what someone else is saying to me as they're commanding me or maybe, well, this is what they think love is. And maybe I can talk to them about that. We all want that. It's, it's not that far from the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Oh, I think it's, yeah, it's. So I think Paul is hitting on something exceptionally important to us, which is, is my religious life, am I feeling tons of commanding and duty, but no love? Right? And, and I, my experience has been that a number of, of the, my students come from a place where they're going, I need to find a path of love because I'm not feeling it where I'm at. And some will say that means I have to leave my religious tradition or the institution that I do love, but I just can't go there anymore. It's too painful. Others will say, I want to go there and I got to figure out how I can do that. Or others will, will say, can, can both of these things happen? Can I live a, a spiritual path and my institutional path? Master, are you speaking of your students at the university or of your Sufi uh, students? Sufi students. I see. Yeah, my Sufi students. Yes, to a person. So these are, these are people who are seeking God. That is correct. And, and they either believe that it no longer can exist within their religious tradition or they believe that it can, but they don't know how to find it anymore. Or they believe, you know, that, that they need to solve this riddle. And so they feel that their religious path lacks love, lacks a spiritual fulfillment. And so they look to Sufism. So we're talking about people who are, are seeking God because they love God and want to be loved by God and want to experience that love. And they want to be loved by the people that they meet in their religious tradition, and they want to be loved by the people that, that occupy an office within that tradition, and they want to be loved by the teacher in the classroom, or they want to be loved by... They're seeking love. Often they're afraid. Fear can, fear can come out in a student where they act out or whatever, but... But the whole idea of this is uh, we, can, we can be bold enough in Christ to command people to do their duty. But the better path is to appeal on the basis of love. And, uh, you know, so I guess that's, that's a real question for these people. And it all comes back to love. So you want to try Stairway to Heaven? Okay, so we're not talking about the song. No, we're not talking about the song. Which is too bad. We had a good thing going. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know my, my own personal preferences. But uh, no, let's talk about this. This is sort of a metaphor I've developed based upon a statement of Hazrat Inayat Khan, uh, who's credited largely with bringing Sufism to the West in the early 20th century. And he's at the head of our order, right? Uh, historically yes, he, speaking. The head of our stream. Yes. Our order, would we would say, goes back beyond into into antiquity, some of us would say our order is a stream that come, came from the first humans. But uh, yes, and so the head of our stream, yes, uh, very much so. And, and, and a beloved person by us um, who wanted to share what he felt was a message of love. You know, before I met you, I had seen his book. I was going to say books. I think it's a book. You know, I, I saw his book on music. Yes. Right. The mysticism and of sound. The mysticism of sound. That's right. I saw it at a bookstore at Barnes and Noble in Orem, Utah. It's a great, great piece, but 
that's it's heady Sufi stuff. It's heavy heady mystical stuff. A lot of people who who I would recommend people don't start with that. I passed <laughs> it up. I, I I sensed that it wasn't the right book for me as a beginner. I perhaps it's uh it would be appropriate to mention a, a good place to begin as as a beginner first. Let me say, as I was told, <laughs> I love books. I love books. I really do. I, I've I've gotten through 260 plus books already this year, and it's it's October. And and I was told by Sufis, it's not in books. That's right. And I think you know we've we've had enough conversations, even on this podcast, for someone listening to to get a sense of why that is the case, right? And yet we've also talked about how books can be helpful. There is a good book uh, as an introduction to Sufism by William Chittick. Sufism, A Beginner's Guide. It's a good one. Yeah. But ultimately, I think any anyone who has an interest in Sufism that, that that's beyond academic is either looking for or will end up looking for and hopefully find a master to, to teach them, right? It's, this is a traditional way of, of educating or de-educating, as we say. Right. And it requires that that one on one and that those spiritual exercises, right? That we don't we can we can get a sense of some of them from books, but it's something that in my experience that, that I've worked with you and you've worked with me and it's a shared struggle, right? Going back to that jihad image, right? Of that struggle of the soul. Um and in fact now that I put it that way, you're sharing my struggle. And that's, that's, that ha- that has to be from love. What else can it be? Why would you do this? It's true. There's certainly, I, I don't, I don't make any money doing it. <laughs> it's not for that. And I've intentionally moved away from that. Some people saying you could hire yourself out as a spiritual director, or everything else. And I'm going, I have enough money. My money meets my needs. I'm good. Uh, I'm retired. I make enough money, I have a nice house, everything goes well for me. It has to be out of love. If it's not out of love, then it's out of ego. And so I shy, I'm trying to shy away from that. And I know that you are, are, are returning again and again. You know, you could just say, all right, I'm done with this and, and walk away. But I think that's because you love the process as well. And it is experiential. And we do practices so that they can expand potential for experience or they can help us understand the experiences we have in a spiritual light in other words that we begin our soul reaches out and says well maybe that person isn't doing this because they hate you maybe this person is actually doing it because they love you but it's not you're not it's not working it's not being received as love or it's not understood as love and and in fact the person may be doing it to hurt you we can't ever say that that's not true either or they do it as you've suggested earlier as because they they really think it's out of love and they really do believe that and yet it just isn't loving or at least it doesn't come across that way by the way i do you know going back to we all want to be loved to love and to be loved and i count myself among my fellow humans in that i want to love and be loved and i love god and I want to experience God's love. And I do have an experience of that when I sit in silence with God. 
I don't, I don't always experience. And, and by the way, I think some can, I think even you master would be more likely to experience uh, God in this way than I would through hymns, for example. Now we could probably get on the same page with some Baroque music or maybe even some Led Zeppelin. I mean, a song like, uh, like Kashmir, right. That just great song that, that just brings to my own mind, my own experience of the vastness of a desert or an ocean because they're really the same, right? When you're surrounded by nothing but desert or ocean and the canopy of the stars is is visible, right? Because because you're in the middle of the ocean or in the middle of a desert. And and it just reminds me of my experiences of the divine, right? Uh, I can relate to a Joseph Smith who goes out in the woods to pray. I can relate to experiencing God in that setting. Because I myself, when hiking in the woods, which is something I love to do, have been brought to my knees by the woods. It wasn't I decided. It wasn't I said I'm going to pray. It wasn't I'm going to kneel. It wasn't my ego. It was the love of God that I experienced in that setting that brought me to my knees. That is so beautiful, you know. And the origin of that song, Kashmir, not to digress too far, but to reinforce what you're saying, came from a journey that... that, uh, that uh, Robert Plant, and I think he was with the other members of Led Zeppelin at the time, took in Morocco, out in the desert. And I don't know why they called it Kashmir, which is a province of Pakistan, India. Um, <clears throat> but as, as we look at that, I think that they had, I'll be bold and say it, my interpretation is they had a spiritual experience, just like you're talking about. They, they it did something to them to see that. And Robert Plant wrote those those lyrics and just said, you know, so I think it's a very powerful song because it's not a product of mind. It's a product of soul. That's poetry, right? That That's poetry too. You know, I'm, I'm a philosopher and a poet, which is a bit of a contradiction because as I learned from one of my teachers, you know, poetry, what poetry does is it speaks directly to the soul. And that's what I hear you saying about this song, right? That's poetry. It speaks from the soul to the soul, soul to soul. Philosophy is about propositions. Propositions are to your, they appeal to logic, right? They appeal to your rational uh, ability. That They're really opposites. And, and you don't, we don't have to say, therefore, that an appeal to the mind has no value. We just, no, have, to, we just have to, we just have to try and bring that into an appeal of the soul. Right, and that's why I often tell students we don't. As a Sufi, I don't work. I try not to work mind, heart, soul. I try to work soul, heart, mind, and and that's the essence of a spiritual path. And I I do want to say something briefly about something you brought up, which is the that we use the word Sufism, and and that's one that I kind of shy away from because when we get into isms then we're into the land of propositions and so that's not to put down what William Chittick is doing at all when he says an introduction to Sufism but it's why you'll probably find me not really talking a whole lot about the history of Sufism or where the name came from or any of these sorts of things because I, I prefer to call it and I hope I do it all the time but it's my preference to call it the Sufi path which then emphasizes the experiential path that we have before us so that it becomes less about mind and more about experience, that we're walking a path. And that's not to put down a book on Sufism. It's just to understand what it is. This also plays into the fact that we say we treat books as wisdom collections. 
not as commandments to us, that they are inviting us to learn about ourselves and to engage our soul in a spiritual experience as we read them. And that especially includes poetry, right? That we, we want, Sufis are lovers of poetry. We want to get into that soul space with the reading. So if I read Aristotle, I should be reading Aristotle as to how it helps, gives me wisdom regarding my own soul on how to love better. Otherwise, it's just uh, academic interest, right? right? It's an ism. So in going on the Sufi path, is that where we're going with the stairway to heaven? Yes, we are. Let's, let's do my stairway to heaven. So Hazrat-i Khan, this will take just a second. I hope I not belabor it too much. But Hazrat-i Khan said, let's use the metaphor of religion as a stairway that leads upward. We can't see the heights of it. It disappears from our view. But we know we want to be up there. And so we decide that we're going to climb this staircase. Usually what happens to us is we climb the staircase to a point where we feel comfortable. And then we sit down. And where that comfort level is depends on each one of us. Like, okay, I'm obeying all the things I'm commanded to do. So I'm good. Sit down. Maybe we just need a rest. Yeah, well, we could need a rest. That doesn't mean we won't get up and climb. You're right. That doesn't mean we're stuck in that position. But he's working with, he's coming to the West, meeting Western Christianity or meeting Western Judaism or meeting, you know, he's, he's coming and he's finding, he's dealing with theosophical societies of the late 19th, 30, 20th century that are, that are, that are burgeoning and, and, and all of these things. And, and he approaches it, by the way, through music. He is a highly trained classical Indian musician and he gives these concerts he's trying to get people interested but he finds that they're really most interested in hearing his exotic music he's he's exotica right he's, he's something different out there and so he attracts a lot of people doing that and he's going well I'm only doing the music so I can get to talking about the Sufi path I'm not I'm not really uh, interested in just being a musician that's, I, that, that was a means, not an end. So he actually stops doing that, and he starts uh, holding meetings. Uh, he holds them all over the place, in Paris, and he, he travels to, to uh, the West, Philadelphia. He travels, it does a lot of work in San Francisco, a lot, which is the origins of our stream of his, of his order, right? That we come through the people he initiated, especially Merchant Samuel Lewis, uh, uh, initiated in the 1920s. Paul Reps is another one who wrote Zen Flesh, Zen Bones that he initiated. We come to this path um, through his work there. Uh, and so he basically, he was dealing with people that essentially he saw them as sitting on these steps and, and going no further. It's absolutely true. I met my current teacher, my teacher, Shabda Khan, in Istanbul in 2014. And I already knew that I wanted to find my way on the Sufi path. And I knew many great Sufis in India. You know, I, I lived in India for nearly a year in 2010 and 11, taught at the University of Delhi. But I had been back 
tons of times and and every time i tried to find time to meet with my sufi friends there's salman chishti and and uh, aman uh, his his uh, brother and uh, it's, he's a brother uh, in through marriage brother-in-law i guess i should say but uh, idris and many i have all these friends there kalandar and i i I needed to meet with him. In fact, my wife said, why don't you spend more time with them? Because you're a lot better when you're with them than when you're not. Salman spent some time in my home, and she got to see Salman first first right off. And she said, you need to spend a lot more time with him. And I go, okay, okay, you're right. That's I get great. it. My wife likes you too. Uh, my wife loves you too, David. I love I know Alyssa. she does. She's, she is a person of uh, passion for what she believes is right and it comes out of a sense of love and i think she is she's committed to that path of love in many cases <clears throat> it would be easy for us to abandon the path of love it, it could be more convenient it could be more it could be way less painful uh in all of our relationships i mean i could have taken my wife's comment you're a lot better when you're around him i could have taken it as like oh so you don't like me when he's gone or i could say you're right. You're absolutely right. Thank you for saying that. And and so it, I can turn it into a command to do my duty, or I could turn it into an appeal uh, on the basis of love. That's my. That's in my power and my power alone. So sometimes that's in our hearing. Yes. And it's in our ego hearing, our, mm. I guess the ears of our ego. So I think Hazri Nayak Khan was, was tied up with, he kept, trying to work with people as a potential Sufi disciple. And he just kept running into the fact that they thought they had it figured out. He used to say, my greatest challenge in working with people is they'll come to me for, for, to, follow, to see if they can follow a spiritual path. But um, really what they're after is to see if my ideas square up with their ideas. And if they don't, then they're gone. And he's saying... Well, that's not how the master-disciple relationship works, right? It isn't about ideas squaring up. That's a function of mind or logic, or I don't know what that is. So they come out of a sense of, of love, but, they, but really it becomes a thing of ego because they're going, you have to agree with me. And he's going, well, if I agree with you, why come to me? I mean, okay, I agree with you. Sayonara, right? I mean, okay, that's it. We can now go our separate ways. He kept seeing people on these stairs that were testing whether or not their stair was a good stair in the mouth of this Sufi master. And this is when? In 1910 is when he came to the West, and he died in 1927. So this problem predates social media. Oh, by far. Social media just magnifies it. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. And, of course, Jesus tried to say it in his own way. If you love those that love you... What the heck? Even the Pharisees do that. You have your reward, right? That's Yeah, you have your reward. Yeah. You got your club. Your club is all together. You know, congratulations. Yeah. And, uh, you know, are you happy? Well, That's as know, far as that goes, right? We can make a religion into a club. We can make uh, uh, the people who we hang out in our ward into a club. I think clicks is somehow uh, sometimes the word we use with this. Uh, sometimes someone in a youth in, in, a, in a religion might feel excluded because they aren't allowed into the clique. 
And it's a very natural thing for young people to do. I mean, it's a natural thing for many people to do. Uh, be, com- be comfortable. So the stare, the stare feels really, really comfortable. Well, isn't it really, it's about that same impulse, right? We want to love and be loved and, and we get this sense of, okay, I'm in this, in this space where I feel loved. And where I love these people, and it's easy, by the way. This isn't loving the people who are hard to love. I'm going to love the people who think like me, and I'm going to feel their love, and I think I'm good. I'm just going to stay right here on this step. That's right. Why not? I mean, and so there don't have to be nefarious motives to the formation of cliques. There don't have to be nefarious motives to uh, a religious leader or an authority figure within there. They may be very sincere in what they do, but we can turn it into something that is a misguided love. We can turn it into our own damnation. I mean, we're talking about a damnation. Literally, we're talking about being damned in our own spiritual progress. We're just going to stop here. We're going to build a dam on this step, and we're not going to flow upward anymore. That's it. In fact, all the water flows downward, don't you know? (laughs) I control the spillway on the dam. That's right. I di- I dispense the water that flows. Uh, yeah, it's very easy. So I can in in whatever context I'm in, I can say, you know, hold hold, brother or sister. I'm going to try and get that uh, you know moat out of your eye, and and that's easy to do. And I think I do it all the time. I have to I have to really work at guarding against that. I, I'm trying, but. We can't even really have this conversation without, in some sense, doing it. And so I think, tell me if I'm wrong, I think there's a sense in which we have to be able to embrace that part of ourselves. It's not that we're trying to annihilate the ego, right? as some people speak of uh, of maybe not necessarily this spiritual path, the, the Sufi spiritual path, but perhaps, perhaps even this one and other spiritual paths. I think even those other paths where people talk about it that way, I think it's a misunderstanding. I don't think it's really an annihilation of the ego that we seek. Correct. Correct. Because it's a part of us. If it's a part of our experience, how can we divorce our experience? Our experience is our experience. It's part of us. And so what we want to do, well, how about we love the ego? that we appeal to the ego on the basis of love, that we have compassion upon that part of ourself that, that judges harshly, especially that part of ourself that judges ourselves too harshly. This is why the second level or second station of the soul is called the nafsa luamma, but what it means is the blaming soul. This is where I'm messed up and it's my own fault and I hate myself and you're going, you're not going to make any spiritual progress if that's where you're at either. That's another damn. Forgive my, my ignorance because I do struggle with this myself. So I wonder, I, I think in, in formulating the question, I can already sense the answer coming. I've been here before. So I'll give first my analogy, which is back in grad school when I went to a physician and my physician said, your blood pressure is slightly elevated. And, and I asked him, and this was an honest question. I said, is my blood pressure elevated because I'm high strung or am I high strung because my blood pressure is elevated? I really didn't understand. And, and he said, you're high strung because, sorry, your blood pressure is elevated because you're high strung. Now I've come to a, a more recent understanding and I don't think this actually contradicts that physician at all. I think he was a very wise man. He was actually a Jungian 
psychologist in addition to being a physician, I think that that the two are one and the same thing. We try to we try to put these in terms of cause and effect, but I think they that's because we're separating the mind from the body, and that's not a real separation, right? They're they're two manifestations of the same thing at the same time. But I but I wanted to ask, you know, if could if I learned to be to go easier on myself, would I then be less judgmental of others? I'll bet the answer is yes, isn't it? Well, yes, if what you mean by going easy on yourself is that you've learned to love your yourself and accept that you're not perfect and and not in an indulgent way. If we're going <clears throat> if what we mean by that is indulging our ego. No, I, I meant if I were less I judgmental. Know what you mean. I'm just saying, right? No, I yeah, if we're if we're doing it in a way where we're not being judgmental and condemning, right? Uh and not, you know, ordering ourselves around remember the first station of the soul is the commanding soul if we've left the commanding soul and we move to the blaming soul we then can move to a soul that is inspired that's the next station of soul which means we open ourselves up to receiving guidance from masters guidance from books guidance from our our the great messengers of god and guidance uh, from the divine itself and now we can move forward now we can move someplace else what about from from ourselves in some sense? I'm just wondering if at that point, if then we can receive some kind of wisdom from the judgments that do pop up, right? If we don't try to push them away, if we accept them, we don't really apply them, right? We don't really, we know that, that they're judgments, but if we can see them and we can see where they're coming from, that even that can teach us something about ourselves. Oh, absolutely. I think absolutely. I would say that we put them in a holding area, right? We, we say, okay. I need to think about this right now might not be the not only think I need to I need to learn about myself from this from my my soul needs to examine this and so in, in essence what we do is say I'm just gonna I'm gonna put it in a place where I don't think it's gonna harm me or and I'm not gonna condemn it let's let's I'm gonna put it in a relatively a comparatively non-judgmental space it doesn't judge me I don't judge it and then say is it true so it becomes an observation it, for anyone who's experienced any kind of teaching and meditation, it, it really does seem to relate in my mind to the idea that when you're meditating, you just, if some, because people have the idea that you're somehow going to be free of thoughts, right? That that's the goal. And they, and they think I can't do that. And they, they, they maybe don't even try or they try and fail, but really it's about noticing what comes up and then just, but not, then don't beat yourself up over it. Right. But it's just like you said, just notice it. So you're putting it in a separate place where you can just observe it. Isn't that interesting? I I'm observing this now, right? Instead of it taking over and you're acting out of it, which you're acting from this ego position rather than from a soul position. Right. And, and this, so the observer is one of the ways in which we talk about those experiences within, within meditation, broadly speaking. And, and I would say that that what the Sufi is going to say is you're more than an observer. And, and it's more than that because from the Sufi perspective, it's your inner truth, your soul that is bringing that to your conscious mind. In other words, this is the opportunity when if you open yourself up to the soul telling you, it'll bring in that thought or it'll bring in that crisis or it'll bring in that self-judgment because it's trying to tell you 
that this is something we can work on and something we can try to figure out. And we can incorporate into ourselves for its strengths and we can learn to live beyond its weaknesses and drawbacks. That's beautiful. Yeah, and so, so the notion of the Sufi is not just the observer, but is what is the healing path? And the soul is what, what leads us there. And uh, this is why I, one of the reasons why I gave you your Sufi name. Servant of truth, servant of reality, servant of God, servant of the divine. That when you enter into the spiritual path, then you send you you send yourself forth on on that uh, that trajectory that you you want to serve the truth. Well, what is your truth? Your truth is your soul, and your experiences. That's your truth. And so we, we would look at that as your soul's trying to teach you something. Okay. So that's, that's on that path. That's on that stairway to heaven again. Yes. And I, and I do want to take the stairway to heaven just a little bit further here. So okay. leaving, leaving behind what Hazri Nayak Khan said, uh, which is, I think, very powerful. I'm sitting on a step. I'm not getting anywhere. I'm loving the step. I brought my drink holder and I put my recliner up on my step and I can observe everything that's going on. Uh, I'm creating my own little cave out of it. Out of it. I see the shadows that are there before me and hear the voices, but I'm never going to leave and walk up to the light. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, we find a, this, this comfort zone and then we, we have a tendency. We have a tendency to see someone on the step below us who's not doing what they should be doing. And, uh, and, and we might say, sister, brother, uh, brother in Christ, sister in Christ. I'm telling you that because I figured Christ out and you apparently haven't. So brother in Christ, sister in Christ, um, you're on the wrong stair. And even though that stair's a good stair, you're doing it wrong. And you need to figure out how to walk up to this stair, which is the correct stair. So I'm going to send you some of my water so that you can you can drink my Kool-Aid and figure out how you're going to get up to my stair. And so we, we begin, we have that tendency to begin judging because our, our, the comfort of our stair then turns into the truth of our stair. And, and, and then we begin judging. The other thing is we can look up above and we say, brother or sister in Christ, um, you're going beyond the mark. You're getting ahead of the general authorities, the brethren. You're getting ahead of the brethren. Uh, you're thinking too much. Uh, you're, right, you're, you've, you've gone beyond the mark. That, that stare is taking you into a place where you think you're going to have spiritual growth, but you're not because you've gone too far. You need to come back to my stare. This is the right stare. I can get you a recliner and a drink cup. I can, we can figure this out and, and you'll find that this is the right stare. And then as we begin to collect this community on our stair, we start saying, by the way, this is the only true staircase. And we own this staircase. And if you're not going to come to this stair and this stair only, we're going to kick you off our staircase. The only true staircase trademark. That's, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> and it's not, that the stair, it's not that the staircase is doing any of that. It's that we have taken duty, maybe, as we see it, and we've created a whole bunch of commandments out of it, an entire culture that surrounds it, and we start booting people off of staircases and saying, that staircase is, 
if you even get on that staircase, you are going to hell. You can't, there is no other staircase that will benefit you. Now, we, why, we might be able to say, wait a minute, I love the, these, I know these people that took that other staircase. Maybe there's good on that staircase. And maybe I can take the good of my staircase and turn it into an evil. And, and so the question of love bears upon this. Am I really loving other people when I'm saying, hey, you need to come up to my stair or, or you've gone too far? Or am I really, am I creating a commandment of duty out of something that was offered in love in the first place? And uh, so I, I think that that's what really, one of the things that really might have bugged Jesus about Pharisees in his day. Because they invented all these rules about washing and all this other stuff. And he's going, it's not the point. It's just not, that's not the point. You've taken love and you've turned it into a commandment of duty. I'm not trying to put myself in the same category with Jesus, but I definitely think the Pharisees wouldn't like me. I'm the man who started my day yesterday on the Sabbath reading hymns to Inanna, went to my LDS sacrament meeting, on to the Chinmaya mission for a lecture on the Gita, and then out to lunch with my atheist friend. Well, hey, you know, yeah, you've, you are consorting with the, with the unclean. You are pagans and, and unbelievers and heretics. <laughs> well, Samaritans of all things, right? right. False religion. Samaritans, you've, yeah. you've, well, we could go that way, and hopefully nobody would judge you that way because they, you know, we don't, it's not our business uh, really to get involved in that. When we do, we harm our own soul as much as we run the risk of harming somebody else's soul because we've let our ego stand in the way of our love. You know, David, I was, what I was actually doing was just being me. <laughs> I was just being myself. And I guess, you know, I guess you nailed it. Uh, I was seeking truth, you know, call me Abdul Haq. You are up the hawk. And so I will say this. I don't claim to have gifts or powers or anything else. But I have walked this path further. And from it, I think I've begun to discern true seekers. And, and, and those who want to be true seekers, who I love as well. Uh, and the only way I'm going to say this is that there's a reason why that is the name I gave you when you were initiated is because it was obvious to me. And how was it obvious to me? Well, I'm not sure how it isn't necessarily a rational thing. It's just, I meditate upon the upcoming initiation. I try to absorb it into my own soul and try to let that speak. And I, I think it is accurate. So, so the whole stairway to heaven thing that we've been talking about here means you can't read the hymns of Inanna especially not on Sunday or whatever. I mean, this is the risk that we run rather than asking you, well, what do you find in the hymns of Inanna? What is it you're finding there? What, what, what is it that speaks to you out of this? Why, is, why, why do you want to be with an atheist? What, what is happening with an atheist that you think is, and you may not know. I'd but, love to answer that, actually. I, I think I'd give that a stab. You know, when I'm reading Enhendwana's hymns to Inanna, there are several things that attract me to this. First of all, this is the first author, and she's a woman. This is not something that I was aware of before I came across Anhendwana. That really got me curious, right? This is 1,500 years before Homer, right? And she's a priestess to the goddess, the same goddess who was part of the Israeli cult, right? The Israeli temple cult. No. 
it, it's the it's the Canaanite. She's the same. She's the same goddess. That's part of the. That's part of the the my tradition, right? She's part of the the Israelite temple cult, right? The 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 Asherah that we that we read of in the Bible as poles or groves, right? There there's something behind those words that's really lost in translation, which is the divine feminine, and so here's this priestess of this goddess singing her devotion. Not only that, but this first author gives us a story of her own writer's block. As a writer, I just love that. That's incredible, right? The first author tells us about her writer's block in one of her hymns to her goddess. And it's the devotion, right? It's the devotion, right, that that sees her through that and that produces these praises to this goddess. And And they're just beautiful, right? They're just beautiful. And, and they're speaking to, to, to this goddess who, who I believe in. Even as a Latter-day Saint, I, I claim that right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Why, well, belief, again, in, in the Sufi path, uh, I would suggest that, that we, we learn that um, belief is one of the aspects in which we approach the divine and we approach the sacred, but we also know that belief is ever mutable. And and that I'm not talking about your belief in specific. Now I'm just talking about belief. And, well, and, and it's it's a choice, right? Uh, when I say I believe, this is something because it because at first this is what I should be speaking to, or what I could be speaking to as a Sufi is because of the experience that I have of the beauty, of the feeling that's expressed in the poetry of this priestess to her goddess, about her goddess of her goddess because that resonates with my own soul and my own experience of the divine feminine that's why i say i believe it that's beautiful and that's why you're abdul haq the seeker of truth the truth in cap all capital letters right truth in all capital letters is because you will accept the wisdom that leads to truth no matter the source I, I got some. I got some from my atheist friend at lunch too, and I'm going to keep that to myself. Okay, then there, there you are. That's a, uh, you know, the wisdom is all around us because our experience can, through our soul, can teach us. By the way, lest I'm misunderstood, I, I'm not saying that I didn't get some from my LDS Sunday School meeting, or my Chinmaya Mission Gita lecture because I did. Okay, well there, there we are. Well, I'm just going to be frank. Some people say, how, how is it you can love the Sufi path and practice it and still go to the LDS church, meaning that they've probably rejected the church and that's their business. I never ask people about that. I don't, I don't get into in, any, of, any of that. That's their business. Well, it's about belief. You don't seem that interested in belief. As a only, as it leads to, only as it leads to love and truth. And, and, uh, so I guess what I'm saying is that they seem to think that there's some disconnection there. And, and I just go, well, I think I, I think I need to go to church because I need humility for one thing. We could turn that around too, couldn't we? Because aren't aren't some asking, how can you be a Sufi? You say you're a Latter-day Saint. Yes, I've had that. 
uh, I, I had some pictures of when I was in India. I shared on Facebook ages ago, and one of them was I went to an Indian wedding, and so I got a red bindi from the priest that was there with a grain, three grains of rice on it, which is a symbol of the fertility they hope will be in the marriage. That's their custom. And I had it there, and I sent it back, and I had a few people uh, write back, you know, and they'd say things, have you gone native? Are you sure you should be doing that? And these are friends. I mean, they're, they're people I engage with willingly because they're my friends. But I, I kind of, I thought, why are you doing this? Are you, if you, are you commanding me to do my duty or what? They were worried you were on the wrong step, Master. I was on the wrong step. And I love them and I don't really take it that way anymore. But I just thought, I, that's not the reaction I expected. I'm just trying to understand these people and their culture. And they love me. They wanted me to be there for the wedding. This was in the, the Temple of Durga in, uh, in Old Delhi. And uh, they, they were sharing with me and teaching me. And it was beautiful. And I, I just thought... From my experience, you were in the right place at the right time and the right attitude. I remember an experience where I found myself at the Western Wall in Jerusalem, in old Jerusalem, and it was Friday afternoon, Friday evening. It was coming to the end of the day. The sun was setting, and I was, well, I could have been dancing with the men who were there dancing to receive the Sabbath and who were inviting me to dance with them. And I felt like, well, no, that's not my place. I didn't feel like I was going to be converting to Judaism and I would be uh, wrong or unjustified in the sight of God. I just felt like it's not my place. These men were inviting me to share in a celebration that they felt in their heart of hearts. And I've learned since then, you know, it's same thing when I went to a mosque for the first time and I was invited to pray. I said, no, 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 I'll just watch. And I've been to many mosques many times and I've taken students and we've all sat in the back and watched. We were there to observe. We heard the, the sermon, the Friday sermon. We observed the prayer. For my students, this is a, the first time they've ever done this, usually. And what I've learned is ever since that first time, if I'm invited to pray, I'm praying. If I'm invited to dance, I'm dancing. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. You know, I've had many similar experiences, as you know, many mosques where I'm invited. And, and my my I sometimes say, would you allow me to pray as I know how here with you? But I won't, I won't line up. I, I do know how to say your prayer and how to perform it. I say it in Arabic. I do. I do. I know all those words and I know everything else and I respect you for it. And I would sincerely try to do it, but I don't, I don't want anyone there to feel that I am mocking you or that I'm, I've had many people say, why don't you go on the Hajj to Mecca? You know, you're fully qualified to go on the Hajj to Mecca. And I go, well, it's because I, they, I would not probably be wanted there by some people. I feel I could go. You know, I, I don't have any problem with that. I, but, but I, so I, we all handle that in the way we feel most comfortable. And, I, and so dancing is dancing. I've been to the Western Wall on, on the Thursday to see the uh, bar, and, bar mitzvahs and the bat mitzvahs that are going on there at the Western Wall. And uh, I got to blow a shofar horn and, and engage with people and feel their love and pray at the wall and put my prayer into the wall with, with others and have uh tried to sing along and and i'm dancing because my dancing is pretty hideous but uh but i have sung with them but i will tell you one one final anecdote here in this and and then i think i'd like to bring this all back into paul um which is 
one day I was going to, to the Western Wall, the, the so-called Wailing Wall. And um, as I was going there, there was some a particular group of Hasidic Jews that were taking donations. And I had put a cap on, so my head was covered, and I was prepared to go down. He said, you can't go down there. I said, well, why not? Well, you're not really a Jew. And I said, why? Well, you don't follow the law. And I said, the way you follow the law? Uh, are you saying that I'm not a Jew because I don't follow the law the way you do? And they said, that's correct. And I go, well, do you tell the same thing to all those other people down there that think they are Jews? And, and, and they, don't, they don't have the same hat you have. You know, you can often tell members of Hasidim by that particular hat they wear. It's a symbol of, of which stream of, of uh, the Hasidim tradition they belong to. And, and I'm going... Do you, do you really say that to them to tell them that they can't be down there? Well, someone should. And I said, well, why? He said, well, you have to give me money. And I go, why does money have anything to do with any of this? He said, we're taking donations because we're the only people that truly observe the Sabbath. And this place, this world would fall apart, and be destroyed if we weren't praying the correct way and observing the correct way. And, and they said, so... It's your obligation to give us money so that we can spend all of our time praying and studying. I said, well, are you praying and studying while you're out here asking me for money? Are you, you know, I, I just said, I, I, I don't mean to, I don't mean to be, you know, condemn you, but I really just don't get what you're saying. And he said, oh, and you have a camera too. You can't take pictures here. Photos are not allowed. And I said, the sign right over there says photos are allowed. Are you now the law? And so I think, I don't know who these people were, and I, I, I really asked some questions, but I did go down, and I did sing, and I did take pictures, and I did pray. Um, but, but I'm kind of going, talk about a step, which is the only true step on that stairway to heaven. I mean, you run square in front of it. They are the gatekeepers, the complete and total gatekeepers of access to that stairway in their minds. And, and I just thought, wow. Well, it sounds like if you hadn't been a Sufi in this conversation, you might have been intimidated. You might have backed away. You might have given up your camera. You might have given them money. Probably. And, and I, yeah, I mean, we can be intimidated by these things. And, and they are unpleasant. And they do have an effect upon us that we have to then deal with in our soul. And, uh, you know, some of us, when we have these experiences, will walk away spending days or weeks or months saying, I should have said this. Why didn't I think of saying that? And I'm going, well, it didn't happen, so let it go. Well, look what you did. You asked questions, right? It, it, it's striking how many questions Jesus has asked. I'm not going to, I know the answer. I'm not going to give it away. Take this to your, not not to you, but to the listener, take this to your scripture study and find out how many questions is Jesus asked and how many does he answer and how many questions does he ask it doesn't seem that the path that Jesus is inviting us on is about answers when you do the math on these questions it seems to be more about questions I love it and he's he's appealing to us on the basis of his own love he, he loves us, and so he's, sometimes the appeal on the basis of love can be harsh words. It can be calling the Pharisees out because they're in a place where, 
you know, you've got to go up that, you got to clean the staircase. You've got to go get your whip and go up and clean that staircase. I had this happen to me recently in a meeting with men I, I trust. I didn't know them at all, but I trusted them because they're part of the men's work that I'm involved in. And I know what that means. I know the context in which I'm being inspected by these men. And I was asked a question and I got up in my head where I spend a lot of my time and I got called out on it very in very, very harsh terms by someone who I didn't know or didn't know me at all. And I felt nothing but love. I said, this man is right. I'm in my head. He's inviting me to get out of my head. He's right. I love it. I love it. You heard that with the ears of love, it seems to me. That's, that's so beautiful. Well, that was the context. That's the context that's held in this work, right? It's the same kind of context that we're told is the context that, that we're supposed to hold as uh, religious participants or adherents or believers or members of institutions, right? That those are, those are the standards. Uh, in my experience, in the men's work, those standards are upheld. They're not always upheld, and, others, and, and I don't mean there's no, it's interesting because there's no hierarchical authority that's upholding these standards. We are, we are holding those standards ourselves as men. I love it. It's what, it's what we should all be doing. And, and that is certainly compatible with the Sufi path. Um, and as you know, sometimes masters call us out on things. And, and they, that can be hard. And I've, I've been through that myself and, uh, those an anecdotes are there, but hopefully it better be on the basis of love. And that's the responsibility. You know, I just, I'm going to share two questions that have changed my life from reading about Jesus in the new Testament. Question number one, question number one is where Jesus says, um, <clears throat> How am I going to put this? Question number one is where Jesus tells the lawyer. Which one of them, referring to the parable of the Good Samaritan, either the Good Samaritan or the, uh, the two that passed him by, the priest and the Levite that passed him by, which one of them was neighbor unto him who fell among thieves? The question boils down to, am I a neighbor? That's really what, a, not who is my neighbor. Jesus takes a whole parable and it begins with the question, who is my neighbor? The, fair, the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? And it ends with Jesus asking his question, which is, which one was neighbor unto him who fell among thieves? And that has taught me a lot about the questions I should be asking. And when I judge, I'm asking who is my neighbor or even who is not my neighbor? Who is on my step or who's not on my step? And Jesus just blows that out of the water. He's not interested in that question. That's a question of self-righteousness, perhaps. Well, they're not as good as me because they're not on my step. I'll send them a little water, but, you know, it's just because I have to. The, the next question that really came to me is the question that the rich young man asked, What lack I yet? Now that I'm obeying the commandments, now what lack I yet? And that's where the spiritual path comes and that's when it stops being general commandments and it becomes specific instruction to that soul and in his case sell all you have what do i need to unburden myself of in order to follow 
what lack I yet? What is it that, that David Peck is adhered to so firmly that he cannot make spiritual progress until he abandons it? I mean, you're the one who built the dam, right? And, and thinking of our metaphor, and I said that we dam ourselves, right? We're the one who's, who build the dam. And you say, isn't it interesting? We're actually the ones who decide, even if the water flows down to those, you, you just said, I'll send you a little water only because I have to, right? But it occurs to me that it looks like in the picture we're painting, if we, if we stretch this metaphor and hopefully it doesn't break, we can even be damning others. Yes. We could be holding the water that comes down to us from stairs that are above us. And we may, by withholding, we damn them. Yeah, we don't give them. If there's water on the staircase, it should freely flow for everybody. We should all be able to drink at that well. And there's another thing Sufis love is wells and drinking at the well. And I told you, I think about my experiences in Turkey going to the Station of Abraham, where in, in the tradition of that region, which is Shanlurfa, Edessa, as it was known to the West, uh, they believe Abraham was born and went to the cave and there's a spring in the cave and I drank from that spring. And then I went in Shanlurfa to one of the, the, what they consider the site where Job suffered and God gave him water. In the Quran it says he was given a pool of water, one to cleanse himself in in the morning, one to drink from in the evening. And I drank from the well of, of Eunice, the well of, or not Eunice, the well of um, Joseph, or Job. I'm getting all mixed up here. I drank from the well of Job. Why? Because I want their water, so to speak. Metaphorically, I need to find something within Job. I need to find something in Abraham. So this is why when, when pilgrims go to Mecca, they drink from Zamzam, which is associated, well associated with Abraham. And why my dear Sufi friends bring back containers of water from Zamzam that they share with their guests. They go, please, would you drink some of this water? So the Sufi path is one of offering water freely and, and inviting people to drink of, of water, not damming it, not holding it. What is it about this experience that caused us in such a powerful way? You know, I think about a time that I was hiking. It was some kind of national forest or something uh, in Israel. It was near the, the tri-border area of Israel, Syria, and Jordan, I think. Lebanon, there were, there were actually Lebanon. Yeah, Syria, Lebanon, and Israel. That's right. And I, was, um, I could observe, actually, the trenches from the war. I could mm -hmm. see the trenches. Yes. And in this park is one of the, the springs that's one of the sources of the Jordan. Of the Jordan. You're on Mount, you're on, I was going to say it's Mount Bental next to Mount Hermon. I know exactly the spot you're talking about. I've taken myself and people there frequently. Yeah, so I, I, on the one hand, I was on a hike and I had drunk all my water. Uh, on the other hand, it's just irresistible to drink from this pure spring, you know, welling up from the earth, right? I just had to. And I know some people were worried about drinking the water. So some of the people with me were worried. I said, if I can't drink this water, what water can I drink, right? It's coming out from the earth. Yeah. I love it. And, and, and what it's speaking to, of course, Mount Hermon uh, in, in the LDS tradition and, and in others is the location of the, is the Mount of Transfiguration. For others, it's Mount Tabor across the valley. But um, I don't even <clears> think I knew that. I, I didn't well, know that. It's a, it's a to me, for me, it's a tremendously spiritual place, and I'm so happy you've been there. For me, it was too, because I was in the woods. I love it. 
and you know, by the way, not only the woods, yes, it's beautiful. And, and if you went to Caesarea Philippi, which is in that same location, you have that beautiful spring that comes out, the Bonius, right? Uh, uh, known among us also as the Pontius, because associated with the Greek god Pan, Pan. But, but that's the place where traditionally Jesus gave the I am the waters of life sermon. Because you've, if you've seen those waters now crystal clear there, so water is the spiritual metaphor too. And and any rate, I, I, I love it. that The water is there for everybody to drink. And and these are living waters. These are springs. They are the highest quality of scriptural water, so to speak. They, you're drinking from the living waters. And uh, so I think that's beautiful. Um, <clears throat> I think we've had really a fantastic discussion today and conversation about... Uh, this very short verse from the epistle of Philemon. I'd like to read it once again and have us comment on that before we, before we wrap up. Uh, and uh, for this reason, Paul says, verse 8, Philemon, verse 8. For this reason, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you, which I take as a, myself as kind of an ego statement, my boldness. Hey, I, I'm bold enough to to call on Christ to command you. You know, hey, I'm this apostle dude. I'm bold enough to tell you your duty. Right? Though I am bold enough in Christ, back to the text, to command you to do your duty. Now verse 9. Yet, I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. What do you feel, if anything, you've received that we you may want to use as just a summary of kind of where we're at having gone through this exercise of just what maybe 20 words or less i don't know i didn't count them but 20 words or less what's present to me at this moment in this conversation and in this whole conversation really is that love it's that love that love that paul had that love that he received from christ that love that you have for me that i'm receiving from you the love that flows back from me to you and gratitude gratitude for that love because that's that's what i want i'm with augustine i'm with you i'm with my fellow humans i want to love and be loved that's so powerful my love urges me to say can you take this back into your daily practice and find some time to allow your soul to show you the love that you may be thinking is a commandment to do your duty. The love that others, especially in your closest relationships, because that's where we actually have to learn to love most, the people we live with all day. It's easy to love someone we don't have to live with. But find in the proximity of your immediate life the way in which you're being, things are said to you or done to you that you may be interpreting as a commandment to do your duty from, from them, which you may have the option to interpret as an appeal to you on the basis of love. I just would like to take Paul into my practice too, and I will tell you right now I commit to do that. Yes, I will. Thank you. How beautiful. How beautiful. Thank you again for our lovely discussion. I come away from this inspired. I come away from this, as they would say, the disciple makes the master, the murid makes the murshid. Please accept my love 
and my love to you and your family, to so many of the people you associate with. And I would just say to that, Amin. Likewise to you, Master. Thank you, Amin, Amin. I will see you next week. Ma'asalama, my dear Ma'asalama. friend. Ma'asalama. Peace be with you. Thank you for listening to Latter-day Contemplation Presents Come Follow Me. Once again, I'm your co-host, Christopher Hurtado. Please also consider listening to Latter-day Peace Studies' other podcasts I co-host, Latter-day Contemplation, offering a contemplative approach to discipleship, and Latter-day Peace Studies Presents Come Follow Me, offering nonviolent historical critical exegesis of Latter-day Saint scripture at www.latterdaypeacestudies.org. Once again, I'm Dr. David Peck. Please also consider listening to my other podcast of Saints and Sufis, Musings of a Mormon Mystic, offering Sufi meditations and commentary through my The Truth of Jesus is Himself series at www.daviddpeck.com. Thank you for co-hosting this podcast with me, Sheikh Daoud. Thanks also to Latter-day Peace Studies all-volunteer team for editing, publishing, and promoting this podcast on social media. Finally, thanks to our audience for listening and responding to this podcast and for donating to Latter-day Peace Studies, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. All of your donations are tax-deductible and go toward producing, publishing, and distributing content. And thank you for co-hosting this podcast with me, Abdelhop. Till next week. <laughs>